Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5. And let me read you a story, beginning at verse 1, out of 2 Kings 5. <clears throat> you follow as I read that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired, the very mind of God is black words on a white page. Here we go, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and the far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away, turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. This is one of the the most detailed and 
psychologically and sociologically rich stories of conversion that is found anywhere in the Bible. Um, it is probably the, the best known of all of the, um, the miracles of Elisha, this story of the conversion of Naaman. Interestingly enough, Jesus mentions it, and, and if you'll trust me just for a second, um, I, I'm not asking you to turn there, but he mentions it in Luke chapter 4. And uh, he says in verse uh, 27, this is Jesus speaking in Luke 4, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, the story we just read. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now, my, my point is this, guys. When, when Jesus mentions this story that I read you out of Second Kings, when he mentions that, uh, in his ministry, he was standing in a synagogue, by the way. The people were furious. Furious. Why? What made them mad about hearing this story that I just read, or at least hearing it referred to? Let's see if we can figure that out as we take a look at the story. Guys, in verse 1, you are introduced to the uh, to Naaman in exalted terms. He is a man of rank, clout. He is mentioned in this one text twice. It, well, in the, in the one verse it says, he was a great man. Um, it, it also says, he was a mighty man of valor. The, the, um, the leading character in this story is a guy by the name of Naaman, and the one verse says, Pretty impressive guy he was. I mean, this guy was in a position of real influence, real clout. He had rank. He had everything that you might want. And yet, before the verse closes, it closes with four little words that ruin everything. Did you see them? The words are, He was a leper. He is an example, folks, of the perfect natural man. He has everything. He's successful. He's brave. He's strong. He's, um, he's enviable. He's esteemed. He's, uh, rich. He has achieved everything that a hero, hero might want to achieve. And yet, there's one huge glaring issue that spells disaster. It, it casts a shadow on everything else. He was a leper. You know, leprosy in the Old Testament is, uh, was more than just a disease. It was symbolic. It was, uh, it was a condition that excluded people from all relationships, including a, a relationship with God. Um, no non-leper would have ever traded places with him. Even though all that other stuff would have come with it, no non-leper would have ever wanted leprosy. There was no known cure. Um, he lived in a state of living death. He, um, he is cut off in every way 
He was a great man. But he doesn't remain a leper, as the story told you. The story explains what happens and how a a hopeless leper becomes cleansed. And guys, um, I'm convinced that what the Holy Spirit has in mind for us in this story is that we see something about about what human, I guess, greatness can get you. <laughs> um, he has everything that many of us would covet. And yet, all of that is negated because of one glaring issue. You know, there, there are people this morning who are in a lot of ways Naaman-like. They are, there's a lot of good things that could be said about you. Uh, you have the respect of your neighborhood and perhaps your employees or employer. You've, uh, you've gathered um, a fair degree of financial resource. You are valued at your places of employment. And yet, there is one huge issue that spells disaster for you. It it casts its shadow over everything else. You're a leper, spiritually, because you've never seen your need for Christ. And so as great as you may be, as rich as you may be, there's a huge disease that that spells ruin for you. And that that disease is sin. Verse two in this story introduces us to the heroine in this story, and the heroine is a little girl. As you're told, she um, she was captured in a, a Syrian raid in Israel. Um, she could have very much enjoyed the, uh, the leprosy of her captor. She could have very much delighted in his pain. She could have hated him. She could have laughed at him and she could have said, you know, serves you right for what you've done. But instead, she, she acts like Israel was supposed to act. This little, this little Israelite points this Gentile to God. She's, she's still committed to Yahweh, even in a foreign land while she's a captive. So she tells her boss, you know, she, he needs to go to Israel and meet up with the prophet of God who represents God. And so he heeds her admonitions, kinda. Because in verse four, you see him, he heads to the king. She didn't say anything about going to the king. Um, and, and, and he takes money, and she didn't say anything about money either. But guys, the default mode of, of the not yet redeemed is to conclude that money and power can solve anything. Money and power can solve all of our problems, including our spiritual diseases. That is, 
according to what we think. Um, I, 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 I might have problems, but I can solve this with money and power. I, I want to buy it. I want to earn it. I want to work for it. I want to make it happen. I want to will it. And there are two kings in this story, plus Naaman, and they all think like that. Some of you think like that. Some of you think that with enough money and enough clout, enough position, enough power, you don't need anything else. The king of Israel, to whom we are introduced in um, verse 7, he should have known better. But if anything, he acts worse than the Gentile kings. He says in verse 7, well, my God, I mean, what do you think I am? I can't do this. Well, of course he can't do it. But his statement is not a, it's not a statement of humility. It's a statement of unbelief. There are two kings in this story, and both of them are impotent. And interestingly, they're, they're both outraged. They're angry, just like the people in Luke 4. Because I think this story exposes the fact that the real power is not to be found in a king's court. But guys, what you have illustrated here, I think, is a religion, a religion of the world that is that if I'm ever to get anything from God, I'm going to have to pay for it. I'm going to have to somehow earn it. Only this little slave girl gets it right. Out of all those people, she's the only one that got it right. And what you find illustrated by the narrator in this story, folks, is that there are only two kinds of religion in this whole planet. Hear me. Only two kinds. There is Christianity where God reaches down in mercy and grace. All the others say some form of this, that man is asked to reach up. Man is hungering for for some kind of instruction as to how he might um, do enough that God would be pleased with him so that God would accept him. Just like Naaman. Naaman, who is the poster child for a uh, for a man-made religion, for a for a uh, self-salvation project. That's what he illustrates, along with his two king buddies. So here he comes. Here comes uh, Naaman riding in his chariot, headed over to see Elisha, standing tall, uh, dressed in all of his royal stuff, surrounded by military might, bringing cash. (laughs) That should do it, shouldn't it? Enough cash, little power, that'll, that'll, that'll solve it all. But he's a leper. He's also a proud leper. Did you see that? Well, actually, you really couldn't see it. I mean, um... Guys, in the Hebrew language, you know, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. In the Hebrew language, when, when, when people are writing the Hebrew text, there are ways to emphasize things. 
But you didn't have italicized words. You didn't have quotation marks. And you didn't have a bold font that you could type in. The way that the Hebrew writer emphasized things was by location of words. That is, to emphasize things, he would put the words in the front or the end of the, of the sentence. And by so doing, that's how he would make emphasis. Well, guess what the first two words in Hebrew of verse 11 are? Here they are. To me. <laughs> he says, to me. Look at the text. To me, I thought that somebody, when he recognizes it was me, why? I thought, I thought he'd come out and, 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 and do something really spectacular. Because it's me. And when Elisha refuses to see him and sends out his, sends out Gehazi, why? Naaman considers that quite a snub. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great man, and what does he mean sending out to me his assistant? And, and I guess worst of all, folks, is that he comes, he comes with his mind already made up as to how Elisha should deal with him. Look at that verse 11 when he says, But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought... There it is. Behold, I thought, you know, I'm a great man. And I expect great things to be done for something heroic, for some kind of abracadabra, for somebody to come out and say, shebang. But he's a leper. Guys, do you see how insane all this is? I mean, can you see how wacky are his views of God and the way that God is supposed to work? He's just like 21st century man. Because 21st century man's views of himself are so elevated and inflated. And, and his view of how God is supposed to operate is so wacky, just like Naaman's. In the mind of 21st century man, he's got this thing all figured out as to how God is supposed to do this. But he's a leper. Naaman is shocked, angered by what he was told. Because in essence, he was being asked to, to, to have faith in the word of the prophet. He was, being had, he was being asked to have faith in the word of God. And, <laughs> I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's way too simple, says Naaman. I mean, uh, well, I mean, what is this man talking about? I mean, where is this, where is the I am woman watch me roar part of this? I mean, um, where are the fireworks? Where's the lightning bolt? Why, I've got rivers back in Syria. The far part is a much better river than the Jordan River. If, I, if rivers is what I need, I got a river. I got plenty of rivers. I got, I got those. I don't need the Jordan River. This, my prophet man, is not the way this is supposed to work. 
Because you see, I got it figured out. I know how this is supposed to work. I just want somebody to tell me what great thing I'm supposed to do so that God will be impressed so I can heal myself. And yet, God through his prophet Elijah says, no, all I'm asking you to do is to trust in, in what I say. Let me wash you up. Because what I have to give, I give away. And 21st century man cries foul. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Why? Why I thought stop. Stop right there. Because that is your biggest mistake, ladies and gentlemen. God doesn't work according to your specifications. You are not the final arbiter of the truth. You don't get to write your own terms of the gospel. Folks, uh, people today reject Jesus Christ because it doesn't match. It doesn't match the way they thought it was supposed to work. They thought and think that there's supposed to be some kind of performance involved. They, they want to be saved the, 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 the old-fashioned way. You know, they, they want to earn it. And ladies and gentlemen, the most commonsensical, intuitive, natural conviction of the man on the street is that God saves people who have been good. And when he seeks on his own to figure out how he thinks God is supposed to operate, that's it every time. God saves good people and he sloughs off the bad people. And as you know, I'm one of the good people. Why? I I help little old ladies across the street. Why, uh, you know, I, I'm very esteemed at the office. I have a quite a impressive portfolio. But you are a leper. And they are outraged, shocked. When someone like me says to them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And um, the 21st century man says, "Eh, that doesn't match the way I thought it was supposed to work. I mean, um, According to me, I mean, aren't you supposed to do something? You know, guys, in a, in a very real sense, sense, it's it's the simplicity of the gospel that's so offensive. It's it's also the simplicity of the gospel that's that's so beautiful. 
And yet men muck it up with all of their insistence upon performing to earn it and deserve it and work for it and pay for it. And you know, guys, the um, the folks who who think they should earn it and think they can are the people who have drawn this conclusion because they've not seen the problem. They've never seen. I'm a leper. Are you willing to admit that you are morally and spiritually leprous? In this story, somewhere in between verses 12 and 14, uh, God performs this miracle of grace in, in Naaman and such that he humbles himself and he goes to the Jordan River and does it exactly as God told him to do it. And once he's converted, folks, it is... It is impressive, the things that he says. Interestingly, did you notice that once he's converted, now Elisha meets with him in verse 15. Now he is brought near. Now he's brought into, in essence, the presence of God. And he understands and understands clearly that he belongs exclusively to God. There's no other gods, just you, Yahweh. This this former leper... He's now a son of, of this God. He's, this outcast is now a royal heir. The, the outsider has, has become an insider. And there's enormous changes that take place in him. But the one I want you to notice is he is very concerned now that he not sin. Remember that, that verses 17 and 18 when he talks about the two mule loads of dirt when he goes back to the house of Ramon? And, and he's very concerned that God understand and that he not sin before this God anymore. One of the clearest evidences, ladies and gentlemen, that one has been converted is that now I, I do sin, but I don't want to. Once converted, Naaman doesn't become a Jew. And he returns to the service of his pagan king and he asks for pardon, not for permission. And Elisha's response in this little setting, folks, is remarkable. It shows, I think, something of God's gentleness in dealing with Christians in tricky moral and political circumstances. You know, when when I went to Ocala, Florida in 1975 to plant a church, there was a couple down there, and I'm going to use their names because they wouldn't mind. Um, they they The story is all good. Their name was Bill and Manu Lyle. Manu was a, was a Hawaiian. And um, they had two kids who both started coming to our youth group. And their two kids got sweetly converted and went home and con- shared the gospel with their mom and dad. When I first met Bill and Manu, I, I had never met a more tempestuous marriage, a more broken, truculent couple than, than those two. Um, just unbelievable stuff. Well... Through God's rich grace, they both got converted. Bill and Manu, the whole family. Bill was a horse surgeon. He was a veterinarian who major, he did nothing but horse surgery. Now you don't know much about Marion County, Florida, where Ocala is, but Marion County is horse country. 
George Steinbrenner has a, has a ranch in Marion County. All those horse racing places in South Florida and Hialeah and all the horse racing goes on. Uh, those, those carriage pony things. I mean, it's, uh, it was said to me one time, I don't know that this is still true, but there were more registered thoroughbreds in Marion County than there were humans. But Bill Lyle had developed quite a reputation as a world-renowned horse surgeon. And so people would bring, they would fly their horses in. And he, he took me one day back into his clinic and he showed me this, this operating table that stood like this. And as they doped the horse, the horse would fall onto the bed. It was really remarkable. Had this beautiful clinic sitting on about 35 of the most beautiful acres. And people would fly their horses in from all over the world to have Bill Lyle uh, do surgery on them. Right after he became a Christian, he comes to me and he says, Jimmy, what am I going to do? I said, what do you mean? I mean you know. He said, um, I am performing surgery on horses that are going to be used in an industry that is chock full of crime, mafia influence, and addiction. I've got to stop this. What would you tell him? Well, I took him to this passage. And I want you to notice that Elisha does not expect Naaman to abandon the world and escape to some ghetto where he can withdraw from all of the moral difficulties and dilemmas he finds himself in. You know, guys, there are clearly times when Christians need to be told, a new Christian needs to be told, that they're going to have to leave their employment. For instance... A prostitute cannot continue to offer her services to the glory of God. But here, clearly, God is telling Naaman that he wants, to come, he wants him to go back into that world and to, to bring some light into a, an otherwise dark world. Pretty impressive. But the thing that I want you to, to, to see, it is all spawned by Naaman's concern that he not sin anymore. Sin was his enemy. And anybody who comes to this Christ of ours understands that. Sin is my enemy. Obedience is my friend. And so when Jesus mentions this story in Luke chapter 4, the people in that audience in that synagogue respond just like the king of Israel, they're furious because men don't like being told that they can't save themselves, that they're lepers, and that only God can fix them. Guys, the gospel offends because it tells people The only way you can ever be fixed is by somebody outside of you intervening and fixing you. People don't like to be told that. At the cross of Jesus Christ, folks, Jesus, the Jew, takes on the leprosy of the world and is excluded from the presence of God so that Jews and Gentiles might be washed up and brought near. Guys, um, 
maybe I should have read this earlier, but I carry on uh, a little bit of a a correspondence with a guy who's in prison. We exchange letters once or twice a month. And um, by the way, I've asked for his permission to read this. He's given it to me. So I'm not doing anything that he doesn't already know I'm doing. But we write, and um, I want you to hear a little bit of this letter written by a man who was once a leper. Not physically, but spiritually. Listen to this. Well, today makes three years since my arrest. I remember that day vividly. I remember thinking my life was over. I had lost everything. Now, three years later, God has shown me exactly what it was I had lost. I lost an empty existence where I was chasing man's approval. I see now that even after all my horrible sins, I never frustrated God's plans. In his sovereignty, he allowed my sins and used them to strip me of my idols and get my undivided attention. Not many a day goes by that I don't think about that night in that freezing concrete cell, crying so hard, alone, and then the moment I finally gave up and confessed I couldn't go on living without Jesus Christ. I am still amazed that he chose such a prideful, selfish, wicked man such as me to save. I think about all of this when men in here ask me, how I can be so calm when I have so much time left. I tell them, I have lived life without hope, but it's not in jail. I definitely am looking forward to my release date, but my ultimate hope is in heaven. I guess you already knew my story. I meant to write and just say hi. I sometimes feel as if I could talk about what God has done in my life again and again. Everything here is fine. Folks, that's written by a man who once was a leper. And through some pretty extreme circumstances discovered that he was leprous. And embraced this Savior of ours. And now in jail while serving time, he says... Everything's fine. I mean, but um, don't we get what's coming to us? I mean, a, a, a good guy's finished first. God helps those who help themselves. That's all false. God saves people who know that spiritually they're lepers. Because they do, they cast themselves fully on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I have to end this way. Have you ever done that? Father, I do pray that you will convince us that the need is bigger than we thought, that we're far more wicked than we ever dreamed, but we are also far more loved than we ever dared hope. 
that in Christ we are far more loved than we ever dared dream that we could be. Because of this great Savior of ours, we have become insiders who were once outsiders. We've become sons who were once lepers. We've been brought near, never to be cast out again. Now, Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met this Savior, the one that this man met in prison, would you reveal yourself? I can't do that, Lord. I can't, I can't give eyes to see. But your Spirit can. And would you? For Jesus' sake. In his name we pray.